strong category needs a thesis, a very strong definition of the problem, a category name that does its job, which is an intuitive place to sort of answer where's the uh, solution to the problem. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Uh, today, I'm joined with Dave Peterson, one of my favorite guys in the world when it comes to the world of category creation. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, we're in, the, we're in Club Dave, so uh, always excited to partner up with you on that. Indeed. It's always a good club. Well, I, I want to dive right in because I love starting with your story. You know, how did a guy from the middle of Iowa end up in Silicon Valley helping some of the biggest names in technology to design and dominate categories that change the world works? Yeah, well, that's that's a, I think that's a, a, a generous framing, but I'll do my best. And uh, it is kind of funny, though. You look back and say, wow, that was an unlikely path, which I think most of us kind of follow in life and business and, and such. But uh, yes, indeed, I did uh, kind of start off, my whole world started off in a little town called Sheraton, Iowa, in the middle of Lucas County, Iowa. And I didn't know it at the time, but even back then, I was surrounded by categories. It's kind of funny, uh, you know, looking through this lens now, I can kind of realize even back then there were these great companies that were inventing kind of new ways to solve problems. In particular, I remember when I was just got out of college uh, way back in 92, so that will age me properly. And I was working for an ad agency and or a marketing agency. And one of my clients was this company called Vermeer Manufacturing. And if you ever seen that brush chipper on Fargo, that's the company that made that brush chipper. So they were kind of infamously <laughs> associated with that, that movie scene. But uh, uh, Gary Vermeer has since passed, but he was this kind of famous farmer who basically created, solved problems with, by uh, inventing new categories of heavy duty equipment. Brush chipper was an easy way to take down a tree. And in particular, uh, the other story you like to tell is uh, if you ever drive through the Midwest, and you ever see those big round hay bales, well, that was Gary Vermeer. And he realized the problem with baling hay was it required a crew of 20 people and back-breaking labor. And he thought, wouldn't it be easier to use a tractor and one, one person? So he created the one-person baling system, which basically changed the way the agricultural world works. And uh, again, it started with a simple problem. Baling hay is too hard, and it turned into an entirely new category. And I didn't look at the world back then like that, but uh, I can uh, kind of circle back and, and see even back then I was kind of surrounded by categories. And then the long story, hopefully short, is somehow, some way, I had a connection with uh, a friend who asked me to come out to the Silicon Valley in the mid-90s, right when the internet came out. I admit, I didn't even know how to use a web browser. I, I thought email was inter-office. I didn't know you could email people externally outside of AOL. And I was about as, you know, big-eyed and fresh-faced as you could get, and somehow I kind of walked right into this whole category world at a company called Vantive Corporation, and it was one of the early companies in the CRM space before there was CRM, and I, I got to work with a team there that was not just building a great company, and uh, it was also realizing we were in a category war with a bunch of other companies. Ultimately, the one that won that war was a company called Siebel Systems. And it was really the first time I ever felt the impact in business of, you know, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you sell, 
market or no matter how good your products are, a category can defeat all of that hard work and great products. And that's what Siebel Systems did when they kind of rolled up all the sub subcategories in CRM and created or subcategories and created CRM. And and that was uh, kind of my, you know, big awakening a moment. And then I always kind of carried that lesson around and, and early in my career and it sort of weaved me through many, many operating jobs and, and uh, founded a company. I uh, served the CMO in a lot of different companies of different sizes from publicly traded companies to um, startups. And, and then one day I decided to stop working one company at a time and seeing if I could help build a portfolio of companies. And that's how we started Play Bigger back in 2011. Awesome. It's been a fun journey. So let's talk a little bit more about Play Bigger. So that is the name of the book that you helped write, but it's also the advisory firm that you started. So what is this concept of category design that has been that thread in your career and really is at the heart of Play Bigger? Yeah. Um, so if we were having a, a discussion about you know categories prior to the book coming out uh, in 2016, it would have been, you know, a long discussion, very interesting, kind of in the abstract around this notion that we look at the world through this kind of lens of what we call the magic triangle, which is, you know, company, category, and products all move at the move together. And, and we feel like a lot of companies, uh, at least in the tech space, really didn't pay attention or feel like they had any right to control or define their categories that they operated in. And at a simple level, a category is ultimately, you know, the proxy for a problem you solve. And the categories are the way that people sort of navigate the world. And, you know, one of the examples we give quite often is when we're talking about this is the grocery store, right? So, you know, if you're handed a big list, at least when I get handed a list from my wife to go, you know, cook dinner, you know, you walk into a grocery store and the only way you can navigate a grocery store are categories, right? You have to go to the organic bread section to spend, you know, 15 bucks on a loaf of bread, or you have to, you know, get to uh, uh, all the different items inside the grocery store based on, you know, the, the categories. And it, it, that makes sense in the consumer world, but it never really made sense in the tech world. And so we, after doing this as operators for 20 years, and then after working pretty hard at, at Play Bigger from 2011 to about 2000, call it 14, we just heard a lot of people say, you know, you guys have a lot of great ideas and you do a lot of good work, but why don't you write a book? And that is a quite a endeavor and an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. And then uh, long story longer, um, we decided to write a book, but we realized we couldn't do it on our own. Met a great guy named Kevin Maney who helped get all that shit out of our head and put into a codified into a process that spilled out into those uh, chapters you can now find kind of embedded in the play bigger book. And we hoped we, you know, we had dreams and hopes that we sort of codified a, a, a different discipline that you could apply right alongside all the things you were already doing in business. And, and I think that's one of the perception questions we get is category in addition to all the work I'm already doing? Is it a third job inside my very busy day or does it blend in to what I'm doing? And we believe it blends in. You know, you're gonna build a great company anyway. You're gonna build great products anyway. Why don't you take control of the category that will help value and make your products and company make sense? And, and since that book has come out, it really is truly, you know, the book title is played bigger, but it's all about category design. and. Every single lesson we ever learned by our hands-on experience, plus 
150 to 200 interviews with CEOs, plus a bunch of research around how the economics work. We we pushed it into that book and hoped, kind of, we joked, we kind of open sourced it because we hoped the world could use it as a bit of a field guide and a manual for, you know, taking something back from the industry analysts and putting, you know, putting the steering wheel back into uh, inside the business and build that kind of muscle memory to, you know, create these categories for the businesses that you're building. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of great companies that have, uh, you know, we can point to that have had a lot of success doing, doing that work uh, since the book has come out. So in that research you mentioned, you know, one of the things you came across was this law, the 610 law, as you kind of call it, related to the IPO sweet spot. That is important, especially as private companies are staying private a lot longer today. So why is that concept one that investors and founders and everyone else kind of needs to pay attention to? Yeah, yeah. I, I really wish I could have a conversation with, you know, um, as we all say, 2006 Dave, <laughs> because if I would have known back then what I know now, I, it would have changed my uh, thoughts on on, on how category timing works and ultimately how career timing can work. But the 610 law was something we discovered by accident. We were trying to figure out, we had a whole bunch of questions about category economics and how does the, you know, how do different things like funding, money raised, time, how do these all correlate with how categories naturally develop? And so we were just doing the research to see if we could come up with some answers. And our, our data science team uh, came up with this big kind of, question mark of like, wow, you know, when we looked at funding rounds and the amount of money funded, it really didn't have any impact on the successful categories and, or the companies that became category kings. But the one thing that did stand out was there's this time window, um, you know, companies that basically went public in the six to 10 year time frame, you know, yielded all the economics. As in, if you went public earlier than six years, even if you had a successful IPO in the long run, you would be trading at a negative value. And if you went public after 10 years, uh, again, you may have some positive results from your IPO, IPO but in the long run, uh, you would, you would uh, see those results kind of dwindle away. And so all of a sudden, we're looking at this giant spike of all the value created in uh, you know, post-IPO was living inside the companies that went public in the six to 10-year time frame. And, and so we were not sure about what we were looking at. So we shopped that up and down St. Hill Road with all the venture friends of ours that helped us uh, really come to a conclusion as well as uh, with the big investment banks. And, and here's the part where I'd have to wave my hands and nobody can, <laughs> nobody can see me waving my hands. But there's a category curve model in the book that kind of explains what happens, which is you know, about the six to 10 year period is when really a single leader for a category starts to emerge. That leader starts to take all the growth with them. And you'll see it as, as the category economics rise in that category curve. And then that's when you start to see all the competition starting to fade away, which helps you know, boost margins, which you know, growth and margins are two of the things that you know, are highly rewarded for publicly traded companies. And we took that, that six, 10-year window and slapped it right over the top of the category evolution model, which says categories take anywhere from, you know, call it five to 15 years to evolve. And there was a direct correlation with those two things. And that's when we realized, wow, there is definitely a window of time that is burning or a fuse that is lit when you're developing, uh, when you're building your company and building your products. And I won't say it's 
a finite law, as in there's not exceptions, but to the degree it's something that's very relevant. And I think if companies looked at that research, they might be able to make some decisions about not just, we're not experts on taking companies public, but perhaps uh, when you need to start thinking about really, you know, shaping and taking control of the category that you're in, because that's going to matter a lot when you start to approach the um, IPO window. Very cool. Now, so what uh, what's that mean for companies like Uber and Lyft and some of these unicorns that are getting past that ten year mark today? Yeah, I, I again, I can't speculate on what what will happen with those IPOs, and there's certainly some very successful companies that we've seen, you know, have a successful IPO outside that window. But you know, the best take that we would give those companies that sort of stayed in the private world and, and, and harvested the category economics while still staying private, you know, you could argue that they're going to sort of come out public at the apex of the category economics. And there's probably still some growth left in there that could be shared with the public investors, but, you know, it may not have the same ride as a company that started to climb that growth rate at an earlier point in time. And so I'm, I'm guessing that those categories are still pretty big and there's still some growth left in them. But uh, one would question, will the ride sharing category, you know, is it a $50 billion category? Is it a $250 billion category? And how much growth is left in that? And then ultimately, what category will start to form on the back end of that? So, so I think there'll be uh, some growth there, but the you know, when we always look at it, we say, well, when will they hit the apex of that growth? And that's the point when you go from like category creation to category harvesting. And, you know, we've seen that with great companies like Microsoft, right? They, they have been harvesting their category for 25 years and they're not complaining about it. But uh, it's a different type of situation at that point. It moves from like solving problems to, you know, harvesting economics of the problems you solved. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So, you know, when I look at category design, one of my favorite parts you guys talk about is point of view because it requires a company really to draw a line in the sand and take a stand for what they believe in. But, you know, getting your executive team, your investors, your board, your employees all aligned to this point of view is far from easy. So how do you help companies navigate this to come out with something that is not just a safe, watered-down point of view? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a piece of the category, um, call it building blocks, that sometimes get you know, perhaps to your point, watered down or even not recognized for the power of the point of view. And, you know, we always look at a strong category needs a thesis, a very strong definition of the problem, a category name that does its job, which is an intuitive place to sort of answer 
where's the uh, solution to the problem? Ride sharing is a very easy thing to understand. You don't have to sit there and sh wonder what that means, right? You, you know exactly what that means. But that all kind of, as I like to say, speaks to the head. You know, it makes sense. You know, hey, I need to get from point A to point B. I'm going to use my ride sharing app to get an Uber or a Lyft. But the point of view speaks to the heart. It starts to help you help customers make almost an irrational decision to, you know, choose your company and to basically ultimately become a fan of your company using this technique that we did not invent at all, right? The point of view is built around a almost a debate framework of framing a problem up front, which plays off that anchoring bias, clearly articulating the ramifications of that problem, painting a picture for the future, and then explaining very clearly what to do now. This has been used in every debate since the beginning of time. It's been used in every infomercial that you've ever seen, you know, while traveling, stuck in a hotel room at three in the morning. And, uh, it, and arguably, you can see category designers use this point of view framework to change the conversation from a pr uh, product-led conversation or a company-led conversation to a problem-led conversation. And, and that's the key. A point of view allows you to talk about the problem first. Salesforce and Mark Benioff talked about the problem of software first. And he had that famous no software logo on the end of software, even though he was a software company, right? And so he attacked the old and brought the world to the new. And that was a SaaS model and, and, and cloud, cloud uh, delivery of software. And when you bring a point of view into, into the mix, it can really, really speak to the heart and start to move people's behavior around and make it really clear that the, old, the way the world worked in the old way is silly or stupid or dangerous, and the new way is uh, something that you should you know, enlist and embark on. I, I think one of the greatest category designers out there right now is, you know, and you could pick, pick on his personality all you want, but Elon Musk is definitely bringing us to his world with his point of view on many things, right? But, uh, but to a certain degree, you know, there's a fine line between a, uh, a mad scientist and somebody who's going to get us to Mars and back, right? And so every time he launches something into space, we're sort of rooting for him because we know through that point of view that he has a vision that we can get to Mars and back someday. And, and so therefore, it's not a failed rocket scientist. It's a, you know, it's an innovator that's going to change the way that part of our world works. And that point of view is the way to have that story start working for your company and your products. And it, and it sets a context around the problem that gets people sort of mad or sad or excited or fearful. And it, it, it really is a, an effective more than a tool, effective strategy to you know incorporate, and we just we're always amazed. Uh, I think it's just because it's you know the technology industry is such product first mentality. You know you 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 make shit, you sell shit, and everything else is kind of bullshit, right? And so so by bringing a point of view into bear, it it sort of sets the product and the category and the and the company are important, but the problem is the most important thing. And if you don't like that problem, you should consider our company and product to solve it. So, you know, throughout our conversation here, you, you've talked about CRM. It's where you started your career and you referenced Siebel and Salesforce. And one of the concepts of Play Bigger is that categories evolve over time. And, you know, this hits on an idea I've been playing around with called continuous beta. And it's basically this idea that both companies and people need to be continuously evolving. 
and they can't get comfortable with success at any point in their career or their company lifespan. So how have you seen companies and you know people for that matter that make up those companies practice this concept to stay ahead of the change? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, super relevant. And I would argue one of the most important rule of thumb, and it's not just categories, business, right? That, you know, like we say, um, today's solution creates tomorrow's problems, right? And so every time you find yourself in a particular category, you got to understand that that category has a natural curve to it, right? It, it starts off with everybody thinking you're crazy. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's this massive surge of adoption. And all of a sudden a bunch of VC money comes rolling in and a bunch of companies emerge. And then eventually one company starts to rise and become this category leader. Well, as that curve reaches its apex, there's always another curve right behind it. And the best way to explain that, kind of even going back to the CRM example, and the, I, I think the modern day example of that today is what uh, you see Qualtrics doing with experience management. But if you were standing around in 1996 and you worked for an SFA company or a field service company or a help desk company or a call center company, and by that time, if you were in particular, the big industry show back then was called DCI. And I think there were 20 to 25 publicly traded companies in all of those industries or subcategories, now that we call them subcategories of CRM. But at the time, they didn't consider themselves subcategories. They were all on a curve. And what they didn't realize at the time, it's easy looking back to realize this, is that these curves sort of feed each other. And you know, if you go back to the history of CRM, the whole thing started with uh, contact management. Right. It started with moving a Rolodex and a Franklin planner into Goldmine and Act. And that was a curve. And those two companies were on that curve for quite a while. They were very successful. But then all along came SSA and said, well, hey, if you're going to digitize all your contacts, why don't we start taking notes and capture what was being said on these calls? And that was a curve. And that SFA curve yielded a lot of successful companies, a lot of, you know, a lot of economics there. But lo and behold, SFA was just a subcategory inside of something called CRM. And that's when Tom Siebel said, hey, it's not about SFA call center help desk, or, or it, it's all about centralizing all your customer data into one spot and having a unified CRM system that feeds all those things. And when he did that, that marginalized the value of all the subcategories called SFA and call center, et cetera, and turned it into a meta category called CRM. And then at that point in time, you would have said, war is over battles are uh, finished, put down your weapons, it's over, right? But then all of a sudden the problem shifted underneath Siebel. And the problem didn't move from needing a CRM system. The problem moved to you can't implement that stuff if your life depended on it, right? Uh, I worked at a company called Mercury and we used to test that stuff. And there was this great uh, keynote speech that I forget who gave it. It was one of, the, one of the industry gurus that said, you have a better chance of surviving a, uh, a heart replacement surgery than you do implementing Siebel systems, right? And so, um, and so the problem was Siebel systems was impossible to implement. And along came Mark Benioff and said, well, why don't we start to consume software in a completely different way using what they call an application service provider, which is now known as the cloud. And he attacked on-premise software and moved the entire category over to the cloud as we know it now. And again, that was another category curve. And 
there was nobody in the industry, I think, that would have said there's any chance that Siebel was going to go down. And ultimately, it wasn't based off the problem they were solving to automate the sales process or the CRM workflow. It was built around a different problem that moved the entire industry to a different place. And if you understand that this whole world is a raging river and, and it sort of never stops moving, and then you can really get ahead of the game. And and we always uh, sorry for the long-winded answer here, but you know that's why we get excited when you look at companies like uh, Amazon, right? We call it the flywheel. If you understand that the problems you solve today create new opportunities tomorrow, and then you jump on the opportunity you create, that's what we think uh, Amazon does. And Jeff Bezos is just brilliant at this, right? And he makes it look easy, you know, moving from you know, from books to all retail to now acquiring Whole Foods, but. He is the master, and that company is the master at understanding how these new evolutions, these new curves are going to emerge, and he jumps on those curves and monetizes them and takes control of them. And uh, that's the part that uh, Alan and I, my partner Al at Play Bigger and I call this strike ops. And if you can get into the long-term chess match and start to anticipate if we're successful here, what do we need to be thinking about You know, two, three years down the road? you can really start to not de-risk, but really start to create your own opportunities out there, right? And start to see almost around corners and, and start to predict, uh, no pun intended with uh, with your podcast, but start to predict when that next category is going to start to emerge and then how you want to uh, leverage your current strength in the category you're in and use that to start to define and control that next category that's going to start to pop up uh, in the wake of your success. So, you know, that's really tough for companies to do, but it's even more difficult probably for people to do because it takes conviction of believing where something is going and, you know, maybe changing your career and what you're doing. So how do you help people that might be at a big company at a Siebel at that moment that they're on top realize that curve is coming and they need to change? At the end of the day, you know, there's sort of a, there's a whole other topic around sort of how this whole notion of category impacts your career and things like that. And we can dig into that a bit later if you want. But at the end of the day, I think it still lives in the, in the hands of the CEO and really deciding at some point, did we hit the apex of the category we're in? And if we stay, stick around too long without extending, evolving, or uh, expanding this category, are we going to start to slow down? And then eventually our relevancy and urgency and, and our position and, our, and, and priority for our business is going to start to wane. And I wish I could say how, but I do know, you know that there have been many companies that really have done a great job of realizing, hey, the starting category that built, we built our business on was the beginning of the beginning, not necessarily the end. You know, it's not the only thing we're going to do. In fact, it's the bedrock that's going to allow us to do these things. I think one of the greatest examples of this today uh, in the enterprise space is what Qualtrics did, company up in up in Utah or over in Utah, I guess from California <laughs> geography. Um, and as you know, we we had the pleasure of working with these guys. But but the real story is, you know, if, if you look back, rewind the clock two three years ago and looked at Qualtrics, you know, they were a massively successful company 
And they were doing some really cool work in market research. Uh, if you were an academic in a university, you were using Qualtrics to do really advanced analytics and, and, and research and development. And you would use the Qualtrics engine to get basically anything you needed to get done done to you know analyze cohorts and, and do a lot of feedback review and analysis. And and at the time, you know, Qualtrics was doing great. And you could have argued they should just stay right in the space that they're in. Why why bother? Why mess with a good thing? And um, at the time, too, if you kind of peel back and look down at the industry, uh, Qualtrics was sitting neck and neck right next to uh, two other companies that did something similar, um, a company called Medallia that did something around uh, almost like a managed service for customer experience. And they sat next to another company called SurveyMonkey, who many of us have used, right, to do, run surveys for arguably free inside your business. And, uh, you know, all those companies at the time – were worth about a billion dollars in their market cap. And you could argue they should just keep doing what they're doing. But you gotta give Qualtrics credit. They, they realized, hey, this market research foundation that we built is critical, but it was just the beginning of the beginning. This was the bedrock for them to go take down a bigger problem, which was ultimately, how do you start to manage the uh, full range of experiences that really have a material impact on your business? And they went from being a market research company, and we kind of call it their CRM move, and they expanded their category to something called experience management. And they realized, just like CRM, that they had their hands, this platform captured something called experience data or X data. And all of a sudden, what if you could basically use that as a platform to manage your customer experience, your employee experience, your product experience, and your brand experience? And they made it almost silly to think of those things as separate from each other because a grouchy employee could create a grouchy customer or a bad product could create a bad brand, you know, and all the experiences that are, are you almost glued together. And if you use this sort of notion of X data, you could have a better grasp at understanding how to control, manage, and close these gaps around the experiences in all these four areas, customer, employee, product, and brand. And they launched this new category, a new way to think about how to manage experiences in business. And again, at the time, you know, a lot of people were like, well, why would they do that? You know, they were so successful in market research. But um, the problem that they started, by the way, they used the point of view around experience gaps that all companies have, and not all companies manage those gaps. They moved their business from being a market research leader to you know, the category kings of experience management. And that was a long journey. It took about two, two and a half years. And uh, if you kind of track their progress, uh, they were recently acquired by SAP for $8 billion. And I guess maybe it's not the how do you do it, Dave, but why would you do it? And I think the why is really clear because, you know, at one point, Qualtrics, Medallia, and SurveyMonkey were all worth about the same amount, about a billion dollars a piece. And, you know, Qualtrics raised the, the category economics speak for themselves. They moved to a completely different world and a completely different economic set around and ultimately required for $8 billion. And I think if you check the valuation of the Serving Monkey and Medallia, they're probably still floating around a billion, maybe $2 billion. And so the why would you do it is very important. And, and that kind of touches on that point you made earlier about is the category we're in, market research, are we at the apex of that? Or do we still need to stay in here and, and grow this category? Or is it time to use our strength in this category to leverage a bigger play? And, uh, and that's exactly what uh, we saw Qualtrics do. 
That's perfect. So I guess final question for you on this whole concept of category design is that, you know, category design is not just for technology companies, even though we've kind of talked about that a lot. You and I have talked about that CPG, consumer packaged goods, in many ways used to be the biggest practitioners and, you know, maybe even the creators of category design. If you think back to your example, bird's eye that you talk about in the book. So what do you think happened to big CPG that made them stop playing bigger over the last, call it 10, 15 years? Yeah, yeah. I, we actually have, you know, behind the scenes that play bigger, we, we're in a co- this conversation quite a bit, right? And, you know, obviously, for those who know, as we work in the tech industry, because I, I would argue, you know, you got to go where the problem is. And the problem in the tech industry is, you know, this notion of category wasn't anything that was taught in the business schools, right? And so they were very thirsty and arguably starving for this uh, new discipline to kind of build in to all their kind of their day jobs of building the company, building the products. And the only thing I can say about CPG is perhaps, you know, that is how that world works, right? They were, you know, for, and you know better than me, but a lot of the folks in that space were sort of brought into the world thinking category first. And perhaps because it's not thought of as innovative, then, and it's almost like breathing air, right? If you work for a clothing manufacturer, you think categories, right? You, you do, th- you have to, right? You know, because that's how the world sorts out the difference between, you know, high-end adventure gear and low-end, you know, jackets you could buy at Target. And perhaps because it's so normal and not new that, the thought that that could be a huge differentiating strategic advantage in this world is uh, maybe an afterthought. And the only other thing I think of, and this is sort of a possibly a non sequitur, but uh, and I promise I'm not just doing this because he's my buddy, but our uh, co-author of Play Bigger, Kevin Maney, did another book after Play Bigger called Unscaled. And, and it was really a fascinating view on how the world's kind of moving to this more bespoke model where, you know, you don't, the world is no longer required to operate in this, you know, small, medium, large, extra large world. And you can actually create industries like Warby Parker, right? It's a good example where you can just go right after what people need, take all the costs out of it and serve a, serve a population that just really wants high quality eyewear, but doesn't want to pay the brand price for it. And I think if you look at like Warby Parker, you, you see all that, all these great new, like, fashion brands that are coming out real, with real bespoke purposes, like really awesome shoes that, you know, actually feel good and fit good and, and are purpose-built. I think that's where the industry is going. And if the old school kind of CPG world doesn't catch on, this new school will. And I do think there's a new school out there. And uh, I'm a big fan of Warby Parker. I can't, I can't stop buying their stuff, right? Because it's like I can buy a whole bunch of different things that suit my personality and my mood versus buying one pair of glasses that I have to wear for the 15 years because they cost so much. And I think that's where I think our prediction here would be, you know, look out for more Warby Parkers because I think these companies are going to turn the whole industry upside down. And, uh, and then I think that's where you're going to see the innovation in the consumer sector. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Every time we uh, we have a conversation, it always leaves me thinking differently about the world. So really appreciate you sharing it with the Predicting the Turn audience. You got it, man. And uh, thank you for having uh, having me on. And uh, really hope this some of this discussion will be uh, helpful for your audience. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon, my friend. Okay, take care. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.